And turn with me to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. So Joshua 10, verses 1 through 14. I wonder if you could choose any superpower, what would it be? Take a moment, think about it, think wisely. Maybe you would pick flight. That would be kind of nice. I could get here even faster in the morning. Maybe you would pick x-ray vision to be able to see what people are hiding from you. Maybe you would choose the ability to be able to become invisible at will. What about having the ability to affect time? Who hasn't wished that they could extend the hours of the day every once in a while, especially now that the sun goes down sometime around 4? No sooner is it seen that we rise from our beds and set about doing the things that are on our list that we find the sun is already going down, the day is coming to a close, and it's time to wind it all up. Whether it's Christmas, the start of a work day, having to end a visit with friends and family, we've all found ourselves wishing that we could just have a little bit more time. And this morning, we're going to be looking at an extraordinary passage in which that happens, um, in which the man Joshua received just that. It's an extraordinary passage because of the extraordinary events that it records and because of what this passage reveals to us about God's passion for his people. Joshua wasn't a superhero, but he served an incredible God, a God who is a mighty warrior who keeps an attentive ear directed to the cries of his people. And while this passage shouldn't necessarily be taken as a pattern for what we ought to pray for, it is a pattern for the sort of faith that we ought to pray with. Now, in our time in the book of Joshua, we have seen how God regularly worked to bless Israel and to keep his covenant promises. We've seen how God brought Israel through a swollen Jordan River, splitting it so that his people could walk through it on dry land. We've read about how God gave them victory over the cities of Jericho and Ai. We've watched as God worked to restore what sin had broken. And we've become witnesses and, and participants in the story of his redemption through the better Joshua, Jesus Christ. As we've made our way through the book of Joshua, I hope you have been impressed with the significance this book is meant to play in our own individual faith in Jesus. Joshua not only records the historical storyline of God's great work of redemption, but it contains important lessons for God's people as they consider how he has created each one of us to relate to him in his covenant of salvation. Now, in our passage this morning, uh, I hope to impress on you two vital truths about God, two vital truths about God, which I hope will sweeten and enhance your relationship with him, especially now at Christmas time as we celebrate how Jesus came into the world to be our Savior and to be our King. In our time in this passage this morning, we're going to see that God is a mighty warrior who fights for his people, and we will see how God acts to attentively listen to hear the prayers of his people. Now let's begin this morning by reading our passage. If I can't ask you to stand once again for the reading of God's word, I'll be reading from Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. 
As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And when the men of Gibeon sent and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machidah. As they fled before Israel... And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, Stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jeshar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, our main idea this morning simply is this. The Lord is a warrior who has an attentive ear. The Lord is a warrior who has an attentive ear. I have two points for you this morning, which we're simply breaking down our main idea. First, this morning we want to see that the Lord is a mighty warrior. The Lord is a warrior. Second, we see that the Lord hears the prayers of his people. The Lord keeps an attentive ear directed to his people always. Well, first, let's look at how God fights for his people as a mighty 
warrior. Now, uh, I, I've said this before. I'm sure you've heard it before from other sources. Uh, chapter and verse divisions are always helpful for study and for preaching and for teaching. They help us stay organized, but they're not always helpful uh, when they, especially when they distract us from the natural structure of the text. So as we start to get into this, we need to see that Joshua 10 is a part of a bigger section describing the details of how Joshua and Israel defeated, with the help of the Lord, the northern and southern kings and the peoples of Canaan. This is the beginning of a part of a series of events that were set into motion when the Gibeonites made a covenant of peace with Israel, as we studied uh, two weeks ago in chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, we were told that Joshua spared the Gibeonites in spite of their deception, he allowed them to live because of the oath that he and the leaders of Israel had sworn to them, though the Gibeonites became servants to Israel from that day on. We see from Joshua 9 that God did not allow the bad decision of the Israelite leaders to derail his fulfillment of those covenant promises he had made to Abraham. And now in Joshua 10, we see how God actually turned the Gibeonite covenant into the very occasion of bringing justice down on five Canaanite kings. So we're told in verses 1 through 5, that as soon as Adonai Zadik, who was the king of Jerusalem, as soon as he heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to it uh, and its king the same as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how then the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them now, we are told that he feared greatly. Notice that it's the combination of the destruction of those two cities and the subsequent treaty that happened between Gibeon and Israel which led the king of Jerusalem to become afraid. And because of that fear, we're told in verse 3 that he sent word to four other kings, Hoham of Hebron, Piram of Jarmuth, Japhia of Lachish, and Debir of Eglon, saying, Come up! And help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. And we see that they did so. They gathered their forces together, they came with their armies, and they made war on the Gibeonites. Well, Joshua goes on to tell us that when the Gibeonites made this covenant with Israel, um, they fell under a certain amount of their protection. Um, when they had done this, the reason why this throws the king of Jerusalem into such panic is because Gibeon is situated, if you're looking at a map of Israel, Gibeon is kind of right in the middle. And so when this came under Israelite control, there wasn't anyone standing between Israel and then Jerusalem and these other cities which were towards the south. Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Derbe. They were all stacked up like dominoes ready to fall one by one. Now, oddly enough, when the king of Jerusalem issued this call to war to these other kings, he doesn't say, let us go up and fight Joshua and the Israelites. As we know, the Canaanites were afraid of Joshua and the Israelites. But instead, he says, no, let us go up and make war against Gibeon. Now, we're not sure exactly why he says that. Maybe he was trying to secure a buffer zone between him and Israel. Maybe he sensed an opportunity to expand his influence over the region. Maybe he just wanted to punish the Gibeonites for, for abandoning them and siding with, with Israel. Uh, either way, the Gibeonites, we see, are in trouble. 
when the men of Gibeon saw this coalition of kings coming against them, we're told that they sent to Joshua at Gilgal, which is where Israel was encamped previously when they first made the covenant with Gibeon, and they said, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Now, we weren't told the stipulations of the covenant that Israel made with Gibeon. We're not told uh, whether or not Israel ever promised to send troops to help defend the Gibeonites, who, as we're told in verse 2, were renowned as skillful warriors. But what we do see in Joshua's response is that there is no hesitation. He comes up immediately when the men of Gibeon ask him to come. Verse 7 tells us that Joshua went up from Gilgal to Gibeon with all the men of war and with all the men of valor who were with him. And then verse 9 tells us that Joshua and the armies of Israel went quickly. In fact, they marched through the night to get there in time. This would have been a pretty difficult task. Uh, The distance between Gilgal and Gibeon is about 18 to 20 miles, so it's not exactly around the corner when you have to walk. Joshua... And the soldiers who were with him would have had all of their equipment with them, so they'd be marching in their full armor, and they would have been marching uphill. So it's actually pretty impressive to think that Israel's army was able to rally together and get there as quickly and efficiently as they were, especially when you take into account they would have done this in the dark. Now, as impressive as that march is, the focus of our author really isn't at all on the skill of the Israelite army. The key element of every battle in this book isn't about how good Israel was at fighting or about how good they were at marching. The victory has always depended on God as he fights for them. And the battle against these five kings proves to be no exception. Our author wants us to know one big main idea. He wants us to know that God is a mighty warrior who fights for those who love him and who are called by his name. Look with me at verse 8. This is what the Lord said to Joshua as he marched to rescue Gibeon from these five Canaanite kings. He says, Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. It's not exactly clear when, God, when exactly God said this to, Jer- to Joshua, whether this was in the moments leading up to the battle, or whether this was on the road to Gibeon, or whether this is even before they, they set out from camp. I'm inclined to think that Joshua and the elders learned from their mistake uh, with the Gibeonites the first time, and that Joshua went and prayed, and this is God's answer to that before they set out. The key difference between Joshua 9 and Joshua 10 is that as Israel goes into this battle, they go following the clear direction of the Lord. That wasn't the case back in in Joshua 9 where we find that the leaders made this covenant with Gibeon in the first place when they failed to consult the Lord. So now we see that something has changed. They've learned their lesson and they're ready to go forward in obedience to God. Now, the assurance that Joshua received from God as they went into war is peculiar because it's not as if Joshua had, had not already received a word like this uh, when he was called to take Moses' place. Uh, we're familiar with these words already. This is, this is what God told Joshua all the way back in chapter 1, verse 5, and then what he had told uh, the people through Moses back in Deuteronomy 7, verse 24. 
As Joshua led the forces of Israel into their biggest fight yet, he went with a heart of faith, believing that God was with his people to fight for them and to secure this crucial victory. The dominant theme of this chapter, the thing that our author cares the most that you come out of this understanding, is that God is a mighty warrior who fights for his people. And that is the reason that Gibeon was spared and Israel won. Because God was at work to secure the victory with the power of his might. This passage is designed to teach us to fear God and to hope in God, who is the fighter, the the triumphant, mighty warrior of his people. And the reality is that this is a side of God that maybe gets downplayed, but it's absolutely vital. We can't live without this. Life is tough. There's deadly disease. There's hardship. There's loneliness. There's war, famine, drought, rape murder, theft, conspiracy. What's more, King Jesus has commissioned us to go into a broken world, to live our lives as a, as a daily mission, bringing a message of hope to a world that hates us and wants to destroy us. Every child of God has, has been called to live in the trenches of war against the forces of evil, to live the life that is lived on the path of a cross. It's, it's a path that no one has strength in and of themselves to walk. Which is why Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 verse 11 to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, We walk in a world that's a battlefield. And the only way that we're going to be good soldiers is if we know and if we have confidence, as Joshua did when he went up to Gibeon, that the Lord is with us. As Jeremiah 20 verse 11 says, The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. We must catechize our hearts with Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory? The psalmist asks. Answer, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. If God is not our mighty warrior, there is no strength to stand in this life. And if there is no strength, such strength, then there is no hope against the present darkness that we live in. But because God is a mighty warrior who fought for Israel, who fought for Gibeon, and who fights now for us, there is hope. No matter how dark the world seems to be, there is light and the darkness. And we know that the victory is secure because we know the victor. Our author wanted us to know that God fights for his people. And so from the very beginning of his description of what took place after Israel crested the hill and came to the aid of Gibeon, he highlights four ways we see that God acted as a mighty warrior for his people. Beginning in verse 10. I want to highlight each one of these. The first way that we see God in his warrior act is when he throws the Canaanites into panic. 
Verse 10 tells us that as soon as Joshua and the armies of Israel uh, came upon the forces of these five kings, that the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. There's not even a beginning. There's not, they don't even have time to throw insults. They come up over the hill and they struck them with a great blow and chased them, we're told, uh, by the way of the ascent, which is a, a path, to Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekog and Machida, which is like, all the way through. This is a massive battle. They're chasing him down the hill. Now, I can't help but read this. Maybe you're not a geek like me, but this whole scene is like something out of Lord of the Rings. You have this dark army of evil surrounding the Gibeonites, and then all of a sudden, God's forces come up over the hill and crush them. It's beautiful. Uh, these Canaanite kings had, a, had the city of Gibeon with a knife to its throat. And overnight, the, the armies of Israel come crashing down on them, bringing salvation and deliverance to the city. But notice what the author tells us. These Canaanites, king, these Canaanite kings and their armies, they broke ranks, not because of the power of Israel's armies, but because the Lord threw them into a panic. It's the same sort of language that we read in the book of Judges when God delivered Israel from the Midianites using Gideon and 300 men. God broke the enemies and their allies by first gripping their, heart, their hearts in fear. Now the second way we see God acting as a mighty warrior uh, in, this, in this instance is in the way that he strikes the Canaanites on the field of battle. Israel's armies fought on the fields and around the hills of Gibeon, but the way our author writes this, he really kind of leaves Israel out of it. He, he really portrays God as the one who's delivering the licks here. He is the decisive actor. In the original language, uh, when you're reading this, the lines get really blurry as to exactly who's doing what. You can as easily translate the second part of verse 10 where it says, who struck them with a great blow as he struck them with a great blow. And actually, it's, probably, it's likely given that each one of these four verbs in verse 10 are singular, that our author is saying that God is the one who confused the enemy, who struck them down, pursued them, and then struck them down all across the countryside. God is the one who's doing the fighting here. The third way that our author shows us that God is acting as a mighty warrior comes in verse 11, where we are told that as the enemy fled before the Israelite forces, that, he, that God threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Our author goes on and says that there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, this is a spectacular act of God's unique power. If you've ever uh, been in a hailstorm, if you ever had a vehicle out in a hailstorm, you can know you know that hail does, can do a lot of damage. But this is not your average hail. This is something else, and it taps into a bigger theme, bigger biblical theme. And when the Bible talks about hail like this, it's always in the context of divine judgment. Uh, in the context of this passage, it's, it's hard not to think of Job thirty-eight. Verses, uh, the second part of verse 22 and on into 23, where God asked Job, Have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? These are God's instruments of battle. Hail fell on the Egyptians when Pharaoh refused to let Israel go, killing man and beast in every plant of the field. 
Hail is also spoken about in Revelation chapter 6, verse 21, as a judgment that God brings on Babylon the Great. So when our author tells us that hail fell on this Canaanite coalition, he's painting a vivid picture of what it looks like when God the warrior bears his arm against the enemies of his people. This is God's axe. Israel's enemies are being driven back by a heavenly artillery that only God can bring to bear. And the fourth way we see God acting as a warrior comes in the way he listened to Joshua's voice and stopped the sun and the moon until the nation, we are told, took vengeance on their enemies. And we'll get into the specifics of that in a moment. But listen to the summary that, that's given here in verse 14. This is what our author says. He says, There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. As if the previous three examples were not enough, our author wants to make sure one last time that you see this big concluding statement that God fought for Israel. The reason why there has not been a day like this one before or since when the Lord listened to a man is because the Lord fought for Israel. You could not ask for a more vivid statement about God's office as the warrior king of his people. And why is that important? Well, it's important because Jesus wasn't born into a world that was already at peace. He came into a world that was consumed with the darkness of sin and with the darkness of death. For 400 years, the voice of God seemed silent. But on the night of his arrival, the word of God burst on the scene with a brilliance that shone in the fields and brought kings on bended knee to worship him. Jesus came in weakness and in meekness. He was not born into an affluent family, though he was in fact the rightful king, the offspring of Abraham, and the son of David. But as he came, he came as life and light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John tells us. When Jesus came to earth, he brought a sword with him, which he did not wield against sinners, but he wielded against death itself to save them, to be bruised by them, and to give his life for us. Jesus' warfare is the reason we have hope this Christmas season. Because he came as the victorious warrior, because he secured victory for us when he went to the cross and when he rose from the grave, everything we, we can say in the midst of any circumstance, I have hope, I have joy, I have peace because I have Christ. He has secured my victory. He has secured my freedom. He fights for me. And it's only a picture of Jesus that sees him for the conquering king that he is, that will be able to get us through the muck and the mire of this life. As we come to the end of a very difficult year, I think many people are looking to Christmas with a, a greater level of expectation than they have in years past. Like Christmas is going to bring some sense of normalcy to all this, that maybe it'll make things right and we'll be able to start 2021 on the right foot. I even heard a song the other day on the radio called Christmas Saves the Year. It goes, because everybody wants to make it home this year, even if the world is crumbling down, because everybody's got somebody who's got their name on a shelf with cheap decor and flavored cheer. 
you rest assured that Christmas saves the year. And I thought, I, th- I think he's right. Like, everybody's hoping Christmas is going to be that thing that makes this year, you know what, it was a rough year, but Christmas was good, and we're ready to move on. I think people are looking for that. And I love celebrating Christmas. The traditions, the presents, the family, the, the fun. But let's not forget that if Christmas has any capacity to make this year right, if it has any ability to save the year, as that song says, it's only because of what we are celebrating. The coming of the warrior king who embraced our weakness and secured our salvation by crushing the head of the serpent. Christians have hope because we have a God who fights for his people, who is a mighty warrior, who has delivered us from our greatest enemy, sin, and who has secured a land of rest with him in his kingdom that will never fade, that will never go away. So God is a warrior king who fights for his people, but he is also the God who hears Now, I had the privilege of growing up with several World War II veterans in my life. Um, One of those veterans, Mr. David Dordery, passed away earlier this year. He was in the Navy, served in the South Pacific on the USS New York. Uh, He actually saw the flag being raised over Iwo Jima. Now, of all my memories of Mr. David, one of the things that sticks out the most is how hard it was for him to hear anything. Uh, the big guns on the battleship that he served on pretty much did his hearing in. So he was a warrior, but he couldn't hear. And honestly, that made him really intimidating to approach because he was like he was yelling at you all the time. So, I mean, he's a warrior, but he's like, ah, he can't hear me. So it's always hard to come to him. That's not the case here in Joshua 10. This chapter shows us that while God is a mighty warrior, his hearing is keen. And he always keeps an attentive ear towards the prayers of his people. He is the God who is mighty to save. And he is the God who listens. Look with me at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites, that's the five kings, over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jeshar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. Well, Psalm 115 verse 3 announces, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And we would be hard-pressed to find a more striking example of that than what we read here in Joshua 10. This has got to be one of the most astonishing miracles of the Bible and probably one of the most underrated. And it's all in response, we see, to Joshua's prayer. This happened because Joshua prayed. And that is the real key detail that our author wants us to see as he recounts all these events to us. Our author obviously wants us to marvel at this great display of God's power as he fought for his people as the mighty warrior. God moved literally heaven and earth to fight for his people. But the key feature that really made our author gasp is that all of this was in response to the prayers of a man. 
Notice how he summarizes this whole thing in verse 14. He says, There has been no day like it before or since when the sun stopped and the moon stopped. No, no, he doesn't say that. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. That's the thing that's got our author like out of his mind. So Joshua prayed, the Lord heard him, and then he did something that the world had never seen before and hasn't seen since. He altered the very course of the sun and the moon until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. As we as we explore the significance of Joshua's prayer and how God answered that prayer, I want to look at it from two different angles, two very important angles. First, I want to look at what God did that day. And then, second, I want us to look at the significance of this miracle for the big message of the book of Joshua. So we want to look at what God did and then what the significance of that is for our, the whole, our whole understanding of what's going on here. First, let's look at the substance of Joshua's prayer and what happened that day. Verse 12 tells us, at that time, which really could mean any point in the battle itself, uh, some scholars think that Joshua prayed this at the beginning of the day while it was still dark. That makes sense, considering that the sun is told to stand still at Gibeon, which would have been to the east where the sun rises. But verse 13 makes it sound like Joshua was asking for the day to be extended, so it's, it, it's really hard to say for sure. And the best thing is to say is, Joshua prayed it at that time. Just leave it there. So at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Now, we could dismiss this whole event as uh, some sort of poetic device. But the second part of verse 13 really seems to reinforce that something phys physical really did happen to the moon and to the sun that day. It goes on to say, is this not written in the book of Jashar? In other words, if you doubt my witness about this, that this happened, it's recorded over here too. And we're told the sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. Now, the book of Jashar is only mentioned in one other place in the Bible, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. We don't have access to it. It's been lost to us. But from the references that we, we have, we know that it was a book that extolled, often poetically, the mighty deeds and the miraculous uh, acts of biblical heroes. So if you look at your Bible, your translation probably has spaced uh, the second part of verse 12 and the first part of verse 13 a little differently. Maybe it looks similar to what when you read the Psalms. It looks similar to the spacing there. And that is simply to, because the translator wants you to know that this is Hebrew poetry. Some people choose to read this as hyperbolic, as if uh, Joshua was praying in a certain way, and that didn't really happen, but this is the way he prayed. And there are a series of arguments to understand it that way. Uh, personally, though, I think God really did work his mighty power over creation in a very peculiar and amazing way so that the sun stood still and continued to shine for about a whole day until the battle was completed. And the reason I'm driven that direction is because uh, the second part of verse 13 emphasizes that the sun did in fact not, it, it did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So there's this extension of time and experience. I don't know how God did it. This is not a science book. Um, but I do know that God is not subject to the laws of the universe. He created those laws. 
And he normally operates through those laws to achieve his will, but they do not rule over him. So while I can't tell you how God did this, I can tell you with absolute certainty, God is not subject to the laws of physics. And then after all, Genesis 1 tells us that God made light and darkness before he ever made the sun and the moon and the stars, and that they only became the rulers of the day and the night by his appointment. So, That is just a reality we need to accept. We must learn to accept the reality that, as one pastor puts it, putting the entire universe on pause is easy for the Almighty. And I think we leave it there. Now, so now that we looked at the substance of Joshua's prayer and what God did in response to it, let's look at the role this plays in the message of the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua recounts the mighty acts of God as he kept his covenant promises to bring Israel into the land of his presence, the land of rest. Joshua 10 tells us exactly how Israel defeated these five kings at Gibeon, but it tells us a bigger story about God's covenant faithfulness by drawing our attention to the mighty works of God as he fought for Israel. The imagery of Joshua's prayer at Gibeon is reflected in one other place, in the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 3. I want to read this to you. And I, just think about everything we've read in the book of Joshua and compare it to what Habakkuk prays to God. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and of your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging rivers uh, swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out For the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. As Habakkuk prayed to the God of his salvation, he celebrated with themes from Joshua 10, the only other place in the Bible where the sun and the moon are said to stand still. For Habakkuk, the reaction of the sun and the moon, the mountains and the sea and the earth were all in a response to God's speed as he came in force like a mighty warrior to save his people and to crush the wicked. And that's exactly what we have going on in Joshua 10. It's that picture of God as a mighty warrior coming to save his people that led Habakkuk to go on and to pray to God. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the cells. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. That is what a vision of God, the mighty warrior, does for God's people. And to know that that mighty warrior is so diligent, so careful to hear the words of his people and the prayers of his people gives us a confidence like no other. The day the sun stood still was a day like no other. Joshua 10 makes that clear for us. And yet the urgency of God's salvation as he fights for his people is a reality that brings hope to everyone who has placed their faith in him. Israel won that day because God fought for them. The sun and the moon stood still as the fury of God's righteous anger came down on his enemies. And Israel and Gibeon enjoyed the benefits of God's salvation. Friends, that's the God who fights for you. He is a mighty, mighty warrior, but he also has an attentive ear that hears the prayers of his people. You know, our author seems a whole lot less satisfied and fascinated by the fact that the sun and the moon stood still because he was so amazed that the Lord would listen to the voice of a man. When he qualifies that there's never been a day like this before or since, his attention isn't on the sun or the moon. It's on the fact that God listened to Joshua's prayer the way he did. His fascination with the way that God answered Joshua's prayer leads us to ask ourselves, do we treasure the, way, the prayer the way the author of Joshua does? Do we stand in awe of the thought that God, the maker of the universe, the one who set the world on his axis and makes light and the sun and the moon and sets the parameters of Lake Michigan, this God, is, who is a mighty, mighty warrior, still keeps an attentive ear to the prayers of his people? We are fascinated and amazed by that. Only, we can, only you can answer that. Joshua asked for a miraculous thing to happen, and God granted his request. He did this, I believe, not in his own initiative, but under a divine direction from the Lord, in the same way that Moses spoke and brought plagues on Egypt and split the Red Sea and brought water from the rock in the desert. Which is to say, you're totally missing the point of this passage if you think, oh, well, Joshua 10 shows me that I can just tell God what to do with my prayers. I'll just walk outside, talk to the sun, and it'll stop. You're going to be very disappointed if you try that. God answers prayer that emanates from a heart of faith in his power and which aligns itself with his perfect purposes and his holy will. And when we pray as Joshua did in response to God's word, remember Joshua prayed in light of the word he received from God that he was with him, then we may know with confidence that God hears us and he will act with the same power and authority that he acted with on the day of battle in Gibeon. There's only one other instance in scripture in which God altered time of the movement of the sun. It, th there isn't anything quite like this day when God listened to the voice of a man and the sun and the moon stood still. But this day was not the last time when God listened to the voice of a man. Fast forward now, over a thousand years, to the city of Jerusalem, the same place where the king who organized this whole Canaanite coalition was from. Fast forward to that city, to the upper room, 
where Jesus, in the presence of his disciples, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. Jesus prayed as a man, the holy God-man, in a way that Joshua couldn't. He prayed as the only begotten Son of God, fully God and fully man. And He continues to pray, we are told, and to intercede for us as our great high priest, whose blood is an atoning sacrifice that links us to God in an eternal, enduring covenant, who prays for us with the Spirit, who also intercedes for us, so that every prayer we now offer up is sanctified and and seen as a pleasing aroma before the throne of God. Oh, that the author of Joshua had known the full extent to which this new and better Joshua, Jesus Christ, would work to secure peace for us through his conquest on the cross and who has secured for us a listening ear before a loving Father so that we say every day and we know every day that our requests are heard before God the Almighty. Jesus calls us as his disciples to pray and we know that we are heard because he is heard. Our King is a mighty warrior with an attentive ear. And God is glorified when we pray boldly. Prayer is not asserting ourselves to God. It is not trying to, trying to, it's not a stick to try and get some leverage on God so that we can spend His riches on things that we really want. But prayer is a vital part of, a, of living with God. Joshua 10 teaches us to trust in the God who works to save His people. It also instructs us to pray with bold faith in the intercession that Jesus makes for us. As we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in this Christmas season, let us remember how He came to us in weakness and humility. And let us also remember that He came in power to seek and to save the lost. It's in the coming of Jesus that we learn the extent to which God has gone to rescue a people for His own name's sake. And it's in this mighty work of salvation that we see the glory of Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are the mighty warrior who fights for Your people. And we thank You, Father, that You are tender-hearted to Your people that you have a listening ear, that you hear the cries of your people, that you regard the life and the death of your saints, your holy ones, as precious to yourself. We thank you, Father, that, that you have created a world in which there is order and that you are still willing to put things, take, to take things in their ordinary manner and to work in, in spite of them to show your power so that we might boast in the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ.
Thank you, Father, for taking the foolishness of the cross and making us understand your wisdom. Thank you for taking the weakness of the cross and working out in our mighty salvation. Thank you for taking hearts that did not love you and reforming them through the power of the blood of Christ to become your own beloved children. Father, we want to praise you for that. And we want to, we want to celebrate Christmas this year, uh, especially, um, not just looking for a, a relief to this year, but celebrating the one who has come to bring us relief from our sin and from our shame, from our sickness and our brokenness, and who has given us a, an eternal hope that nothing can take away. I pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.